Events of November 27, 1978, in San Francisco City Hall have reverberated forward in time to this day and in a somewhat improbable way. Then San Francisco Supervisor Dan White, a veteran, a former police officer, and a former firefighter, a relatively conservative Democrat who once rescued a woman and her baby from a seventh-floor apartment during a fire and who was then lauded in the city newspaper as a, quote, all-American boy, end quote, held the position of city supervisor at the same time as a man named Harvey Milk, an openly gay man at a moment in time when the Bay Area was a hotbed for LGBTQ-related civil rights activity. So Milk had a great deal of support with the more progressive Bay Area residents, while White's supporters were primarily of the business and real estate-owning variety. On November 10th, 1978, Dan White resigned as city supervisor, and although things between him and Harvey Milk had initially been pretty good, they'd done a lot of work together and shared generally overlapping views and politics. But by this point, things had soured a bit, in large part because they had differing ideas about gay rights and about how large and how quickly the city should grow. White's resignation, however, seemed to be primarily the consequence of financial issues that he was experiencing. The supervisor position did not pay very well, and his former job as a firefighter came with a far better salary. White had also recently opened up a baked potato stand at Pier 39, so kind of an immobile food truck at a hopping location full of foot traffic, but the stand never became profitable, which added to his money issues. Within that same week, the mayor, a man named George Moscone, indicated that he planned to fill White's seat on the Board of Supervisors himself, rather than having another election to fill the seat. And this mayoral seat filling would have tilted the political leanings of the city board toward the more liberal side of things, which is something that White's supporters, who came from a relatively conservative part of the city, did not want to see happen. They encouraged him to get his seat back, to unresign, and they told him that if he did, they would help him out with his money problems. The more liberal supervisors on the board, however, including a very loud and visible Harvey Milk, asked Moscone to not give White his seat back, and to instead fill the seat himself as planned. And this is what led to November 27th, the day Moscone was scheduled to appoint a new federal housing supervisor, which was White's former position on the board of supervisors, and this new guy was definitely more liberal than his predecessor, White had a friend who knew nothing of his plans drive him to City Hall, where he then snuck in through a first-story window to avoid the entryway metal detectors. He was carrying a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson Model 36 Chief Special handgun filled with hollow-point bullets, which are bullets that expand after hitting a target, causing more tissue damage, and which are therefore more likely to kill a human target compared to normal bullets that might instead pass through them, causing less extensive and potentially deadly harm. White requested a meeting with the mayor's secretary, and when it was granted a short time later, he asked the mayor once more if he could have his supervisor position back. 
The mayor refused, and a heated, shouting argument commenced. Mayor Moscone suggested that they leave the entryway where they were standing in favor of his private lounge, which was attached to his office, and where their disagreement would not be so audibly disruptive to the goings-on of City Hall. When they got to the lounge, as Moscone poured a couple of drinks, Dan White shot the mayor twice, once in the shoulder, once in the chest, and then he walked over to the mayor and shot him in the head, twice, at point-blank range. He then reloaded the revolver and left the mayor's office through a side door, walking toward Harvey Milk's office. But he ran into Milk outside his own former office and asked Milk to step inside for a moment, and once the door was closed, he shot Milk five times, including two shots right in the head. After assassinating Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk, former Supervisor Dan White walked out of City Hall unchallenged, and shortly thereafter turned himself in to the same police precinct where he used to be an officer. Now, if you have heard any element of this story before, chances are you heard about what happened next, the court case that led to the birth of the so-called Twinkie defense. The story goes that Dan White went on trial and his attorney successfully argued that White had been paranoid and depressed a psychological condition caused by the frantic consumption of junk food, including Twinkies, which then caused him to spin out of control to not be himself and to go on a killing spree. The actual story, though, is a bit simpler and a lot more friendly to the reputation of the prepackaged snack food industry. Dan White went to trial, and his attorney did claim that White was not in his right mind when he committed these crimes, but he offered up White's change in diet as evidence of a change in mind, not as the cause of it. He argued that Dan White had been a very health-conscious person and had done his best to stay fit and athletic his entire life, but a heavy depression had fallen over him in the year leading up to the assassinations that he committed and his diet, which had shifted dramatically during that same period toward immensely unhealthy snack foods. That was evidence of his distorted state of mind. Not a cause of it, but an indication of it. The crossed wires on this story seem to be a consequence of phrasing during the trial and of the subsequent reporting of it, as multiple local papers reported that junk food had been presented as a cause of the rampage, not as evidence for a changed state of mind that led to the rampage. There was also a great deal of anger over what was perceived by many in the area to be a miscarriage of justice, with a prominent, business-friendly, relatively conservative politician getting off pretty easy, all things considered. He was only convicted of voluntary manslaughter, and his attorney had successfully convinced the jury that he was psychologically incapacitated at the time. So his seeming premeditated murder, and a lot of evidence seems to point at the idea that this was premeditated, him killing two people was considered to be not entirely his fault, and this guy got away with murder with a relative slap on the wrist. And that quite moderate sentence, manslaughter instead of murder, seemed like it might be an indication of the powerful taking care of their own, using the system to protect other powerful people. And it's thought that this may be part of why the story about Twinkies being the cause of a murder spree, a seemingly ridiculous defense that somehow worked, would have spread so easily. The public already thought that the white trial was dirty. So the idea of a comically ridiculous defense that somehow worked kind of fit within that larger narrative. 
regardless of the legitimacy of that mythologized origin story, though, the term Twinkie defense has since become an often pejorative label for any legal defense that is improbable, even to the point of being laughable, especially when it involves demonstrating that someone who did something horrible was not in their right mind at the time, and who should therefore be subject to a different punishment than if they had been fully cognitively capable. Dan White got out of prison after serving five years, and was then snuck out of San Francisco to spend a year on parole in L.A. as California state corrections officials believed he might be murdered in retaliation for what he had done and because he had gotten off so easy. After that year, he was encouraged to not return to San Francisco, but he did so anyway, to attempt to rebuild his life with his wife and kids. But that did not go very well, and his marriage ended soon after his return to the Bay Area, and White committed suicide not long after that in 1985. History is riddled with examples of bad behavior being blamed on substances, which when consumed, render the consumer out of control in some way, not in their right mind. Alcohol, drugs, snack cakes consisting almost entirely of processed sugar, the Twinkie defense's reality does not live up to its mythology, but it's easy to imagine an attorney making exactly that sort of argument, and a jury buying it because we have seen it happen so many times, with other ostensibly mind-warping, judgment-distorting, maybe murder-inducing chemicals. What I want to talk about today is the current drug du jour for this kind of defense, a product called Ambien, and why it, rather than one of the many other mind-altering options that we have to choose from, has become the scapegoat substance of choice for public figures at this particular moment in time, and how we, the viewing audience, should perceive these Ambien apology tours. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Doubt is a powerful thing. And spreading doubt, especially when it comes to protecting one's reputation in the public sphere, is a key responsibility of modern public relations professionals. There's actually an entire subset of the PR industry dedicated to what's called reputation management which often involves cleaning up messes for celebrities and other public figures when they step in it hard and start to get press for the wrong sorts of things. Over the years, reputation management has evolved to include web-specific responsibilities, like building fake websites, dominating certain keywords on search engines, and removing bad comments and reviews from platforms all around the internet. Some of the more classic tactics have persevered, however, and one throwback that sees regular rebirth year after year is the I wasn't in my right mind defense, a reflection of the Twinkie defense, but which takes place in the press rather than in the courtroom. The apology tour is generally catalyzed by a series of bad days for a public figure, that person's name associated with outrage-inducing behaviors, a flurry of articles and blog posts are published about this figure, and their damage control processes are triggered. Reputation management folks come up with a counter-narrative, and that narrative's purpose is to explain away this bad behavior. 
They are in a negative or harmful state of mind because something happened, a death of a family friend perhaps. Maybe they're going through a bad breakup. They're recovering from some kind of injury. One of the more common and popular excuses though, because it humanizes that person and because it's easy to back up and even fake to find or create evidence to support this assertion, is that they have succumbed to some kind of addiction. Or depending on the storyline that they're looking to present, they were maybe the victim of an accidental overdose or a conflict between prescriptions that they were given. And those substances led to these bad behaviors. These stories generally don't convince everyone. In some cases, they are super thin and lacking in detail or believability. They're a bit of a stretch. They're a little bit too convenient. Either way, though, they do create doubt. And that doubt allows viewers and readers and listeners and fans to justify away the behavior, to continue loving that celebrity, that politician, whoever, despite their bad behavior. It gives everyone involved a way out from an awkward new relationship dynamic if they choose to make use of it. And this approach is a win in the fight against critics as well because it provides valuable cover for that public figure. We have explained that bad behavior away and it was a totally understandable and human thing to have happen. What are you calling us, liars? The critics then become the bad guys because they are criticizing someone who has been through something and who's trying to come back, to rise up from the ashes. They're trying to make things right. The truth of these matters, though, is almost irrelevant in a lot of cases. Because what's important in the eyes of the public, in the eyes of certain facets of the press, is the narrative that is presented. Does it fit? Is it on brand? Does it add an interesting new level to that person's story? Does it allow them to justify away all that bad stuff that they've been called to account for? If so, then it worked. They have successfully paved over a rough spot, a potential pothole in their career. Reputation managed. I mentioned the infamous Twinkie defense on this show previously on an episode from 2017 entitled Impulse Control. And that episode was focused on external influences to our behaviors, things like lead poisoning from our environment, but also things like drinking alcohol, which depending on the circumstances is a choice that can sometimes be considered a disease and which can, at times, either reduce or increase a person's sentence for committing a crime. Hitting someone with your car while driving under the influence of alcohol can get you a heavier sentence. But killing someone while drunk can get your murder knocked down to manslaughter if a jury can be convinced that you were not yourself when you did the killing. What's more, even things like rage and jealousy, feelings that can supposedly make us not ourselves in the legal sense, can sometimes be used defensively to get a murder relegated to a lesser sentence. The idea being that because of that different state of mind that you were in when you did it, the charge should be different. Killing someone while thinking clearly, in the US at least, is considered to be a greater crime than killing someone in a fit of emotional weakness. And it's this often fuzzy distinction between crimes that fascinates me about these sorts of cases, because it does seem like we have inconsistent standards in a legal sense and in a moral sense when environmental, emotional, or substance-related factors are introduced into a case. 
the type of substance matters, the type of psychological condition matters, and the type of environmental factor also matters. And in a lot of cases, if you look at these specific excuses being used, our biases tend to line up with other biases that we hold in general as a society. There is some evidence, for instance, that in the countries for which there's data available at least, we punish criminals in part based on their perceived moral weakness or their perceived victimhood. So someone who gets drunk and commits a crime is often punished as a person of low moral character, while someone who commits a similar crime while on a drug for which they have a prescription, which is nonetheless very powerful, will often get a lesser sentence. Interestingly, and again, there's not a lot of data on this, but there is some derived from data that's been collected in the United States and Canada. Folks who take prescription drugs for which they do not have a prescription and who then commit crimes are often given higher sentences than those who have a prescription for that drug and commit a similar crime. The implication here being that our bias about people who take drugs that have not been prescribed to them is coloring our perception about who can validly defend their actions as being the understandable consequence of an altered state. Now, all that in mind, the article that I would like to unspool today comes from The Guardian, and it is entitled, The Devil's Aspirin, Why Do So Many Celebrities Blame Ambien? This piece addresses the flurry of ambient blaming that's been going on in the press of late, particularly when a celebrity or other well-known figure is caught doing something stupid or illegal or behaving in a generally pugnacious manner. Ambien has become the go-to get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the court of public perception. So if you do something wrong, or more commonly do a series of wrong things, you just say you were on Ambien at the time, and even skeptics will generally seem to allow that it's at least a possibility that this drug messed you up enough to contribute to your ugly behavior. That claim will then typically feed into some kind of apology tour, which allows you to rebuild your brand and to add a new layer to your public persona, all of which is typically scripted and set up by your reputation management people. Now, before we get deeper into the meaning of that, let's talk about what Ambien actually is. Ambien is one of the brand names for a substance called Zolpidem. It's also known as Adorma, in Slovakia, Zolodorm in Argentina, Zolpik in Poland, and Somno in both Chile and Peru. I think my favorite name for this drug is Stillnox, because it sounds like the name of a large, sleepy Pokemon. But the drug is available in pretty much every country around the world, and it has over 200 different trade names. It's all more or less the same substance, wherever you happen to buy it, but it's called many different things. There are different delivery mechanisms for the drug, including nasal sprays and rectal applications, but the most popular and common delivery method is the pill, some of which dissolve under one's tongue for a quicker uptake of a smaller dose, and some of these pills are swallowed for a larger, longer-lasting dose. Zolpidem is a sedative of the hypnotic variety, meaning it is a class of psychoactive drug used primarily to induce sleep, and which is most often prescribed to help patients who have insomnia. There are also hypnotics that help with surgical anesthesia, but those are different in that they do not induce true sleep in the sense of the restorative variety that we engage in each night, which is the intention of sleeping pills like Zolpidem. 
Zolbodem works by amping up the effects of the GABA network in our central nervous system. And GABA is an acronym for gamma aminobutyric acid. GABA is essentially the part of our central nervous system that calms us down enough to allow us to sleep. And it does this by reducing our neuronal excitability dampening the speed and pace and strength of the transmissions that we receive up and down our bodies via our nervous system. The idea is that by helping with this process, helping the GABA system dampen the excitability, the sensitivity of all these little transmitters and receivers, Ambien, or other brands of the Zolpidem drug, can help a person who is having trouble sleeping conk off about 15 minutes sooner than they would have otherwise. And it was later discovered that by increasing the dose, or taking a supplementary dose at some point midway through the night, patients could achieve longer periods of sleep as well, rather than just benefiting from getting to sleep faster on average. Those larger doses, however, also led to more frequent and intense side effects, and that led to a reduction in the recommended dose of the drug in 2013, which for context was just over two decades after the drug first arrived in the United States. It was approved for medical use in the U.S. in 1992, a generic version became available in 2007, and by 2013 they had seen enough crazy side effects, ranging from the relatively standard headaches and nausea and diarrhea to the far less common sleep-eating, sleep-driving, memory problems, and vivid hallucinations that they decided it was time to pull back on the amount of drug being regularly prescribed a bit. Even after that pullback on the dose, though, it's still recommended that folks taking Ambien do not try to drive themselves to work the next morning or operate machinery the next day. It can mess up your motor functions in strange and unpredictable ways, and the FDA even went so far as to increase the status of their warning about possible psychomotor impairment the day after taking Ambien in 2016, after new research showed that this side effect was far more common and potentially far more powerful than was originally thought. It was around that time that regulators also began to see indications that the drug was prone to abuse, particularly for people leading intensely stressful lives, or those who had chronic sleeping issues as a result of psychological complications or some kind of environmental or lifestyle factor. It was also a potential hazard for those who were prone to abusing other types of substances, like painkillers or alcohol, as it was relatively simple to become reliant on it for sleep, and to essentially become worse at falling asleep naturally as a consequence of leaning on this drug too frequently. Now, in addition to that bit of medical and historical information, it's important to understand for the purposes of this discussion that here in the United States at least, Ambien is generally considered to be socially okay to take. It's not a shameful thing like some other drugs, and in fact, at times, it can even be kind of a social status indicator. If you're taking Ambien, you have a doctor who will prescribe it to you, so you can get away with taking powerful drugs legally. You are perhaps important enough to be stressed, to have the weight of the world on your shoulders, to be kept up late by responsibility which is often a status marker in certain circles, in the business and media world in particular. And on top of that, you are using modern medicine to help you change your reality, to change the world around you, rather than making adjustments to your life at a fundamental level. 
So instead of being told to do things differently, you are popping a bit of designer science to make the world operate differently for you. And that is seen by some as kind of an alpha move, kind of a large and in charge way to live. So all that in mind, we return to the tale of celebrities and other public figures using Ambien as an excuse for doing bad things. The actor and comedian, Roseanne Barr, for instance, experienced a huge resurgence in notoriety and popularity in 2017 when the TV network ABC announced that they would be bringing back her show, Roseanne, named after her, with the original cast intact. The idea was to present something like what the original show presented, a lower economic class white American family and all that entails, but to do so in a new world in which lower class white American families have become associated with a great number of things, and many of them not terribly flattering. The original show broadcast for almost a decade, from 1988 until 1997, and it was thought that the perspective it offered, adding some nuance to the concept of the white working class family, might be timely. What with all of the caricatures of that demographic that have been popularized since the election of now President Trump here in the United States. But in the years since her show was canceled back in the 90s, Roseanne has become an enthusiastic conspiracy theorist, including being an apparent believer in and supporter of the infamous Pizzagate scandal, which ended with another believer breaking into a pizza restaurant, brandishing a weapon to shoot up an imaginary child trafficking ring, and she also apparently believes in and supports another relatively new conspiracy theory called QAnon, which, among other things, places Donald Trump at the center of a heroic, multi-level black op through which he regularly breaks up child trafficking rings. There is a huge focus on child sex trafficking in a lot of these far-right conspiracy theories, by the way. And that same conspiracy theory has Trump working together with Robert Mueller, the man who is running the investigation into Donald Trump, and they're working together to lock up pretty much every single former president of the United States, many other prominent politicians, and a whole lot of wealthy people who just happen to be Jewish for some kind of vaguely defined corruption that is maybe also an attempt to take over the world, or perhaps they already have taken over the world and they're trying to take it back. It's a little bit unclear which version of this story most of the believers of QAnon actually buy into these days. It changes pretty regularly. But Roseanne's public support for these wild conspiracy theories did not seem to phase ABC in the slightest. What did worry them, however, and what led to the cancellation of the new season of Roseanne was a tweet in which Roseanne said, quote, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ, end quote. A tweet that referenced Valerie Jarrett, a former aide to Barack Obama, who is a black woman. The overt racism in this tweet seemed to be the straw that broke the camel's back. After a week of similar comments, alongside her usual bizarre conspiracy theory tweets, and that led to a great deal of bad press for the network as a consequence. Now, despite the show's premiere being the highest-rated comedy broadcast on the network since 2014, and despite the network renewing the show for a second season shortly after that premiere, ABC canceled Roseanne as a consequence of this tweet. And then, like clockwork, came the apology tour. 
Roseanne started by tweeting, quote, Guys, I did something unforgivable, so do not defend me. It was two in the morning, and I was Ambien tweeting. It was Memorial Day, too. I went too far and do not want it defended. It was egregious, indefensible. I made a mistake I wish I hadn't, but don't defend it, please. Thank you. End quote. She followed that tweet with another in which she said, quote, I think Joe Rogan is right about Ambien. Not giving excuses for what I did, tweeted, but I've done weird stuff while on Ambien. End quote. Later that day, Sanofi, the maker of Ambien in the United States, tweeted, quote, People of all races, religions, and nationalities work at Sanofi every day to improve the lives of people around the world. While all pharmaceutical treatments have side effects, racism is not a known side effect of any Sanofi medication. End quote. In another recent high-profile instance of Ambien blaming, back in 2017, Tiger Woods said Ambien was responsible for his DUI after he was arrested for leaving his car on the side of the road with the engine running, the brake lights on, and a turn signal still blinking. Woods later claimed there wasn't any alcohol involved in his erratic behavior. It was a conflict between medications that led to severe side effects, and one of those medications was Ambien. A little further back, Charlie Sheen trashed a hotel room in 2010 and called out Ambien for making him do it. Sean Penn preemptively blamed his bizarre behavior on Stephen Colbert's show in 2017 on Ambien. The screenwriter, Paul Schrader, said Ambien was responsible for what appeared to be a call for physical violence against President Trump on Facebook, which led to a visit from the NYPD's counterterrorism unit. And the most recent Ambien Blaming Apology Tour has been undertaken by Elon Musk, the founder and CEO of SpaceX, Tesla, and several other primarily technology sector companies. Musk recently gained a great deal of negative media attention for insulting a Tesla investor at an earnings call, calling questions about his company, which he didn't like, boring and boneheaded, and telling one investor to sell his Tesla stock and not to buy any more of it if he wasn't going to get into lockstep with Musk's actions. But things really began to escalate when Musk tweeted, quote, "...am considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured." End quote. This pronouncement boosted Tesla's stocks sharply, but also led to increased attention from the Securities and Exchange Commission, who wanted an explanation about the seemingly out-of-nowhere claim. Usually, that type of information, that type of plan, is laid out in detail for the SEC to assess. But in this case, the SEC and Tesla board members, pretty much everyone except Musk, were caught completely off guard and later clarification that the funds were apparently promised to Musk by a Saudi investor, but not in writing, did not do much to assuage the concerns the shareholders and regulators had. Shortly thereafter came the claim of an Ambien-triggered freakout. This particular version of this familiar tale was told to the New York Times, and it contained a great deal more information than had previously been shared by Musk about the stress he apparently feels because of investors, because of short sellers, because of the pressure inherent in doing the kind of work he does, and about the toll all of that stress has had on his sleeping habits, his ability to have a life outside of work, and so on. All of which, by the way, is quite possibly true. Just as it is quite possibly true that Tiger Woods took another totally legitimate prescription alongside his totally legitimate Ambien, which then led to a drunkenness-like consequence when he was behind the wheel. 
And just like it's possible that Roseanne Barr was drawn into a fit of tweeting that just happened to look a lot like racism by slowed neurons caused by an amplified GABA network in her nervous system. It's all possible, maybe, in some cases, even probable. And even the most skeptical among us, those who know about Roseanne's history of saying very similar things, racist and conspiratorial things, and Musk's history of not being a fan of conventional business practices that he feels are slowing him down, all have to admit that it's at least possible that these specific events, these outcomes, may not have occurred had Ambien not been involved. The degree to which it was involved is debatable in every case, as is whether or not these people would have done the same things anyway without the drug in their system. But the fact that it's a possibility they were not themselves at the moment in question when they did these unpopular, in some cases illegal, things, that's enough. That's kind of the whole point here. It's enough to give them cover. It's enough to provide reasonable doubt both in the court of legal justice and in the court of public opinion. And as I mentioned before, this sort of doubt, when skillfully sown, allows folks who do something wrong to make it seem as if the person doing those wrong things was not them. It was some hallucinating, delirious, sleep-eating, sleep-driving, bizarro version of themselves. This type of doubt allows folks on the other side of these stories, those of us who are consuming the articles and interviews and whatnot, to pick and choose who we blame, who we decide to punish. It allows us to slip into the soft and warm embrace of attribution bias, which essentially means that when someone we like or someone who we feel is one of us, one of our tribe, does something wrong, we tend to attribute their behavior to something forgivable, even understandable. When the person in question is not one of ours, though, is from another political party, from another country, another background, someone who doesn't feel like part of our tribe, then we are more likely to attribute their behavior to some kind of deep-seated character flaw. That was them doing that bad thing, not a bizarro version of them whose actions do not reflect the moral character of their true self. As a consequence, someone who tends to be more liberal may look at Roseanne's story and see her as being a flawed, perhaps even horrible human being who is making a convenient, obviously untrue excuse for being that kind of person. Someone who shares some of Roseanne's values in politics, on the other hand, might look at her apology and take it at face value, perhaps not accepting it completely without a grain of salt, but granting her leeway because she apologized, because she offered up an explanation that is maybe possibly true, and because Ambien is, after all, known to have really crazy side effects. The benefit of the doubt is granted or not granted based on our pre-existing biases. Something that I try to ask myself very consciously when I see these sorts of stories is, am I being manipulated in some way by this? by the framing of the story, by my own pre-existing biases about this person in question, or by the type of excuse that they are using. I personally think a lot of Elon Musk's work is damn cool. 
for instance. So when his recent bout of misbehavior started entering the news cycle on a regular basis, I had to kind of adjust my knee-jerk reaction to account for my positive bias in general toward him and his work. The same was true later when he presented his justification. Part of me wants to believe that he's just working too hard and that the forces of business as usual are keeping him down, keeping him stressed and unable to sleep because he's trying to change the world for the better. But correcting for that bias of mine, I suspect the truth is actually more complex and a lot less satisfying than that. More than likely, he is an extreme personality who also has what I would consider to be some douchebag tendencies. Is he doing some cool-as-hell things? Yeah, I think so. But is he also potentially super flawed and maybe even a jerk? Also, yes, I think so. That's a possibility. So should this recent negative storyline influence my overall impression of him and his work for the long term? I think so. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure about the scope of the damage done quite yet, but just like finding out a beloved musician is actually a tool or a favorite politician shares many of the same flaws and downsides as your least favorite politician, I tend to think the best approach is to do your utmost to get the cleanest, most reasonably certain pieces of data and to mix them in with all the gray tones that you've already got in place. I happen to think it's perfectly possible for someone to do good work and to make the world a better place in some ways, and to be a terrible human being, and to make the world worse in other ways. I also think that their negatives cannot help but color my response to their positives in certain ways, and vice versa. Now, I say that this is an unsatisfying conclusion because we seem to be predisposed, a lot of us do anyway, to want things to be simple, to live in a world of heroes and villains where everyone is clearly good or clearly bad, clearly on our team or clearly with the other guys. But reality, if we're being honest with ourselves, is seldom that clean cut. If you think someone is 100% horrible, you probably don't know enough about them. And if you think someone is 100% amazing, the same is probably true. And that's a good broad strokes policy to keep in mind when watching these sorts of stories play out. Is it fair that the wealthy and powerful should be able to resuscitate their image in this ham-fisted way, buying their way to public forgiveness through the craft of clever PR people? I don't know. I would say probably in some circumstances, but maybe not in others. But I would also ask if it's fair that these same people are consistently exposed to more attention and public deconstruction than most of the rest of us are. And they will often be called out for things and face starker punishments for things that the rest of us regularly do without consequence. Now, I'm no fan of racist conspiracy theory-laden Twitter rants, but Roseanne is nowhere near the only person spewing such nonsense into the digital ether, but she has faced some of the sternest consequences for that shouting. Likewise, we have all felt misunderstood and exhausted and psychologically on edge at times, and we can feel like we are trying to accomplish a whole lot of really beneficial things, but the world will not stop pushing back against us and tripping us as we try to run. And who has not talked down about those who we feel are holding us back at times? The main difference in a lot of cases is that folks who live in public not only have more spotlights on them, they also have access to far more and far more quick twitch and intuitive broadcast mediums 
and tools than people like them would have had at any other point in history. So while no doubt other business tycoons throughout history have thought and said angry, insulting things about their investors, Elon Musk lives in a time where Twitter is right there in his pocket all day, every day. He can tweet whatever ill-conceived thing pops into his head whenever he likes. Likewise, Roseanne Barr, drugged up on sleeping pills or not, can speak her mind and bask in the cacophony of agreeable voices from around the world, yes-manning her every declaration, surrounding her in a massive and all-encompassing filter bubble, all day every day, making her feel very comfortable, saying publicly, shouting even, a lot of the things that other people only say in private. Should these people be punished more because they are famous and living at a time where not just them but most of us do not yet have a healthy, balanced relationship with our communication tools? Now, I think you could probably make a strong argument in either direction. I think you could probably make a strong argument, too, that it depends on the type of public figure. You might argue, for instance, that politicians who are potentially victimizing and bringing about negative consequences for the public, the voting public, with their actions, perhaps they should face more serious consequences than regular citizens who also happen to be public figures. That might be what we do if we were basing this type of decision on a rational assessment of the scale of the damage caused by these actions, rather than the size of a person's celebrity or the wave of outrage that happens to follow a particular action. And that, at least at this point, tends to typically not be the case. It's also important to separate morally repugnant behavior, or what could be perceived as morally repugnant behavior by some, from illegal or contractually messy behavior. Roseanne's show was not canceled because she did something illegal. It was canceled because she made the folks up top at ABC, which is a company owned by Disney, concerned that her actions could reflect badly on them and all of their other properties. Likewise, Musk's general antagonism toward a range of people is one thing, and his potential SEC-related overstepping in making a stock market influencing declaration in a very public and expansive way, that's another issue entirely. Now, I'm not saying this situation or these distinctions justify bad behavior. I'm not saying that any of their stories about drugs contributing to their actions are legit. And I'm not saying that this state of affairs, this evolution in the way we communicate and hold people accountable, is an inherently good or bad thing. I think it could be all of those things. And in most cases, it's somewhere in between, purely good and purely bad. But this is a reality worth being cognizant of, and a gray area that is worth sorting through personally in order to assess your own complex feelings on the matter. It may be, if you are like me, that you do not have a universal response that works in every instance for this sort of thing. And all you can really do is try your best each and every time to remain intellectually honest, to strip away as much of the bias that you have inherently as possible, and to address each individual case on its own merits and demerits if you do indeed choose to assess it in the first place. Some of these things can be easily pushed aside and ignored, and we will not suffer one iota as a consequence. Of course, it may also be that you are so caught up in the thrill of the outrage cycle, being one of many enthusiastic whipholders during each public flogging of a powerful person, that you haven't yet taken the time to consider what this 
ritual of misbehavior leading to public apology, leading to forgiveness and rebirth, really means what it represents for us as a society and for those who we hold up as being special or heroic in some way. As these stories become more and more derivative and predictable, though, it is prudent that we at least figure out how to mentally sort them and filter them and process them for information, lest we be deceived by clever reputation management ploys and tricked into allowing bad behavior to go unnoticed or unpunished, or, on the opposite extreme, manipulated into forming angry mobs. Anytime someone does something that we can justify as being punishable, gleefully indulging in our desire to become outraged and to punish at the expense of legitimate exploration of what has happened, what it means, and how we should actually feel about it individually and respond to it as a society. The book that I would like to recommend today is called War in 140 Characters, and it's by the investigative journalist David Patrikarikos. And this was a book that I actually had written down to find a copy of for a very long time, and I finally found a copy and gave it a read, and it was just as interesting as I hoped it would be. There's a lot of very fascinating investigative reporting stories, so on-the-ground stories that this guy reported on in these different kind of hotbeds for essentially places where war and conflict in general has been changed or altered or evolved in some fundamental way by things like social media. And I think the summary for the book actually does a pretty good job of fleshing out that description. Quote, modern warfare is a war of narratives where bullets are fired both physically and virtually. Whether you are a president or a terrorist, if you don't understand how to deploy the power of social media effectively, you may win the odd battle, but you will lose a 21st century war. Here, journalist David Patrikarikos draws on unprecedented access to key players to provide a new narrative for modern warfare. He travels thousands of miles across continents to meet a de-radicalized female member of ISIS recruited via Skype, a liberal Russian in Siberia who takes a job manufacturing quote-unquote Ukrainian news, and many others to explore the way social media has transformed the way we fight, win, and consume wars, and what this means for the world going forward, end quote. So if that sounds interesting to you, and I would recommend it, it's a very good read, it's very interesting, pick up a copy of War in 140 Characters by David Patrikarikos. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes and other information about this show at letsnotethings.com. You can find more information about my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com. And you can reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.